This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. The Holy Gospel according to John 12, John 12, 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. When the great crowd learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. So I'm sure you've heard the one about the man who says to his friend, yeah, I just got a job at the old factory. And the friend says, how was it? It stinks, he replies. A job at the old factory? Some of you could smell that one coming. Okay, we'll stop. All right, well, we are talking about noses and scent uh, this morning because our text features a story of someone pouring some really expensive, powerfully smelling perfume on Jesus. And the sense of smell is maybe one of the most underrated of the senses. We don't think much about it, and we tend to think that we as humans are not very good at it. Well, there was an article uh, in the LA Times a few years ago that said, what does the world smell like to a bloodhound? Right? We wonder about that as humans. And what sense, glorious or gross, can a twitchy little mouse nose detect that's passing us right by? Well, you can stop wondering because it turns out that our sense of smell is not so bad after all. In fact, the article says there's no evidence that our sniffing abilities are any worse than those of other mammals, according to a recent study. The title of the study says it all. Poor human olfaction is a 19th century myth. This paper sweeps away a few centuries of insecurity about our capacity to smell, said Leslie Vosshall, who studies olfaction at Rockefeller University in New York City. 
The paper was written by John McGann, a sensory neuroscientist at Rutgers University, and McGann has spent most of his career uh, studying the olfactory systems in mice, but recently decided to see if he could translate some of that work with mice onto humans. And one aspect uh, of the study suggests that at least in some cases, our olfactory abilities are even better than those of mice. So you, you should feel better about yourself already. I know that's what you were going for. And the scientist says, I'd always kind of known that the human sense of smell was better than most people gave it credit for, but it was striking to us how good it was. And so as curiosity was piqued, where did the idea of humans having shoddy sniffers originate from? And was there proof that this was actually true? And so his uh, research led him to 150-year-old medical texts, which led him to the work of a particular French neuroscientist and anthropologist who believed that our ability to exercise free will came at the expense of being able to smell well. So if God was making decisions, I'll give them free will, but they're not going to be able to smell very well. Right? It seems like kind of a random trade-off, doesn't it? Uh, you can make all your own decisions, but uh, you, may not, you may not smell it coming. But he believed that because uh, the frontal lobe, the, the place of rational thought in humans, the frontal lobe, the cerebral cortex of the brain, was much larger in humans, whereas the part of the brain that uh, picks up scent is much smaller relative to brain size than in other animals. And so he did have some sort of scientific, you know, research backing that up, but they actually had no evidence that humans were any worse swell, smell, at smelling than other species. But it didn't matter because the idea stuck, right? It became sort of accepted that humans just don't smell as well as other animals. Well, Leslie Vosshall, this um, researcher we mentioned earlier, noted this work is important both for the field and as a cautionary tale for scientists to question everything and a reminder to all of us to take time to smell the roses. Well, that was a longish preamble to note that our ability to smell is pretty good and an important way that we experience the world. And some of us discovered that, especially during the last couple of years, if you got COVID and your sense of smell was suddenly gone, you suddenly realized how much you counted on it for taste and, and other things. Have you ever smelled something and suddenly you were transported somewhere else? Right? You could just be going through your day and suddenly you'll get a whiff of something and you'll be like, oh my gosh, and you'll think of something you hadn't thought of in years. Right? You'll have this sudden like wave of nostalgia. Right? Smell has this powerful ability to do that, to bring us somewhere else. In ancient times, odors were regarded as an exhalation of mist and air that had the power to give either life or death. And there was one ancient story about an inscription regarding a deified boy who gave off such sweet scents that flowers were growing out of his grave. And so there we have this sense of the power of smell to give life even out of death. And all of that's in the background to our story. As Mary pours this pound of costly perfume on Jesus' feet. 
And John notes that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. It's so weird to wonder, what did this smell signify? Why did she do this act? But before we can answer that, we might have questions. Questions that Judas asks. What is she doing? Why is she wasting this expensive product like this? What a waste, right? This could have been given to the poor. And this might be a rare moment where we find ourselves siding with Judas. That was a really great point, Judas. No takers? Okay. I think it was a good point. And according to Judas' estimation, right, the text tells us this was worth 300 denarii or 300 days worth of a day laborer's wages. And now it's just running all over the floor. Feels like such a waste. Such a waste. Chad Myers asks how we might respond if someone threw a, ga a gallon of Chanel Number no. 5 around. Right? Wouldn't just a few ounces of something less expensive have made the same point? And then we could add all this extra funds to do something to help people with. And so it's hard to argue with Judas. Right? Jesus, after all, has been spending his time with the outcasts of society. He's been spending time uh, caring for the poor. And so it was natural to see Mary's act as extravagant and over the top. It's as if we were throwing a party in honor of Mother Teresa and someone brought out an $800 bottle of wine. It would feel out of place, right? It would feel awkward. And so we might... We might side with Judas in his questioning, and yet the narrator uh, lets us know, right, that maybe Judas isn't coming from the most innocent and virtuous of places. He kept the treasury and would help himself to it. So saying he wants to help the poor, but did he really? Doesn't mean he doesn't have a good point. But that aside, right, Jesus defends her actions. Jesus says in verse 8, you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Mm. It's one of those lines we kind of wish Jesus had thought, but not said out loud. Because, right, this is a verse that's been used all the time to say maybe we shouldn't invest in programs that aim to eradicate poverty or to help the poor. Because Jesus said we'll always have the poor with us and we don't want to prove Jesus wrong. I mean, people honestly use it that way. But is that what Jesus is saying? Right? We have to remember who this is written to. Remember each of the gospel texts, each Scripture text is written to a particular community in a particular time and place. And sometimes we just sort of flatten that and have our Bibles and we assume it's just sort of read, written for us directly. But initially there was a community that this was written to, an early community of Jesus' followers, often by scholars called the Johannine community, fancy way to say John, the Johannine community. And this community is coming to grips with the fact that Jesus is no longer with them. And what now? What now? And Jesus' words do not reveal a disinterest for the poor, as one scholar notes, but instead a practice more radical than the collection and distribution of charity, such as Judas is suggesting. Right? He tells Judas and the others that you always have the poor with you. With you. In other words, the poor should not simply be objects of charity, but they are to be an integral and permanent part of the discipleship community. However, the physical presence of Jesus won't be a permanent fixture, right? A permanent reality for this early Johannine community or any 
community of Jesus followers to come. And so it's appropriate for Mary to recognize this and do what she can now to honor Jesus while he is still there with them in the flesh. And so leave her alone, Jesus says. She brought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. But then we have questions because this isn't the day of Jesus' burial, right? He's had a dinner party. So did she get the timing wrong? Well, I think there's something happening here that the gospel writer is doing. Here in the Gospel of John, he's giving us a little preview of what's to come in the coming week. This is sort of the eve of Holy Week. And so we have mentioned in the text Judas the betrayer. Here we have an act of burial, honoring Jesus for the day of his burial. So we have symbolized Jesus' death. And in the next part of John chapter 12 is the triumphal entry, symbolizing the resurrection. So really, in three parts here in one chapter, John is giving us a preview of what's to come. Betrayal, death, and resurrection. Kind of a, a stylized thing that the Gospel of John writer often employs. Little clues uh, as to what's happening there. And, of course, it's a hint that by the time the women do come to bring spices and perfumes to the tomb, Jesus will no longer be there. And so if she's going to honor Jesus with perfume, this is the moment. And she does, and the smell fills the whole house. And it's one of those stories that doesn't have an easy corollary for us, right? Because obviously we don't experience Jesus in person in the same way, and the takeaway doesn't seem to be to buy a bunch of expensive perfume and find someone to share it with. But I wonder if the question for us is, what actions of ours carry this powerful scent of love and devotion to Jesus? And how much of our lives, you could say, pass the smell test, right? How much of our lives look like the kind of radical community of welcome and seeking justice that Jesus modeled for us? Dorothy Day was born in 1897 in New York City. She enrolled in college at the University of Illinois and after a few years uh, quit before graduating to return to New York City to become socially and politically active and she was quite the radical. In 1917 she went on a hunger strike after being jailed for protesting in front of the White House to advocate for women's rights to vote. In case you thought protesting in front of the White House was a new thing. I love that image, right? 105 years ago, there were people protesting in front of the White House to say, we have to do better, we can do better. And she considered herself a socialist and an anarchist. And in 1927, she converted to Catholicism. She brought many, uh, she saw in Jesus many of her values embodied and um, turned to the Catholic faith, and she helped found the Catholic Worker, a newspaper that promoted Catholic teachings, examined societal issues, and that helped spawn the Catholic Worker Movement, which was a whole movement of people in the Catholic faith who wanted to change society for the better. And as part of the movement's belief in hospitality, she helped establish, Dorothy Day, special homes to help those in need. Well, the story is told that one day, a woman came in and donated a fancy, expensive-looking diamond ring to the Catholic worker. 
And Tom Cornell, who worked there at the time, recalls that we all wondered what Dorothy would do with it. She could have had, us, had one of us take it down to a diamond exchange to sell it, and that would have bought at least a month's worth of food that we could have given to serve people. Yet that afternoon, Dorothy gave the diamond ring to an old woman who lived alone and often came to us for food. Well, someone, taking their cue from Judas, <laughs> said, that ring could have paid her rent for the better part of a year. What are you doing, Dorothy? Well, she replied that the woman had her dignity. <coughs> she could sell it if she liked and spend the money for rent, for a trip to the Bahamas, or she could simply keep the ring to admire. The last thing she said on the matter was, do you suppose God created diamonds only for the rich? And I have to think that when we begin to honor the humanity of others like this, especially others that the world might not even look twice at or care a whit about, when we begin to do that, I have to believe it would become, as the Hebrew writers would call it, a pleasing aroma not only to God, but to everybody around us. Amen. May it be so. Invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. streaming on Facebook. You can also watch these messages on the Holland UCC YouTube channel. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org.